Get ready, it's time. Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck, is the most powerful voice in women's issues today. As the owner of Motherhood Incorporated, Sandra brings you inspiring, influential, and interesting resources to help you navigate everything from childcare to corporate formation. Each episode of Motherhood Talk Radio features guests who all have a story, experts in their field, and information you won't want to miss. We bring you everything from the latest crafting tips to how to be sexy in your 40s. From great parenting tips to moms facing some tough challenges and most importantly how to bounce back with style. Motherhood Talk Radio helps you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Being all you can be starts right here, right now. Let's do it. Here's your host Sandra Beck. Hey ladies, this is Sandra Beck and I'm so excited to visit today with John Alcock. He wrote a book called 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids, Mindful Messages About Success, Happiness, Leather, Pickles, and the Use and Misuse of Imagination. Now I got to tell you, this book is made for parents to tell their kids, but I got to tell you, I learned a lot and I'm so excited to have John with us today. John, welcome to the show. Good day. How are you today? I am good today. You know, just one of the chapters in your book, you know, each of these little, I call them chapterlets because I like them. They're short. I can read them, you know, if I'm at soccer in between games, I can read them like in the pickup line at school. And like just the one 90% of your worries are wrong. You know, I was probably 40 years old before I came to the conclusion that, you know, most of the stuff I worried about just never happens. Yes, that's one of my favorite chapters, actually. I think it's the second one. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite chapters. And, you know, the other thing is, is not only are 90% of your worries, you never, it never happens, the 10% that actually do happen never happen as bad or in the way that you imagine them to. Uh, anyways, so it, it's, it's all a big bunch of wasted effort. Well, and, you know, the only time that I appreciate worry and anxiety is when it gets me off my butt to, like, clean the house, to clean my office, to to clean the car out. You know, when I do have those moments, um, you know, because we all have them, and it's something I think that some people wrestle with more than others. There's been times in my life when I was very, very anxious, like when I had newborns, and I kept going, oh, God, i got to keep them alive. Um <laughs> You know, versus, you know, starting a new business, uh, which I'm doing now after doing the same business for 12 years. And when when the real estate industry collapsed, um, so did my career. So, you know, having to reinvent myself made all that like that that worry hamster wheel that just started grinding and grinding, you know, kicked into high gear. And I kept a journal during those times. And it was really interesting to me to look back on those things and you say 90%, I'm going to go as high as 99% of the things that I worried about never happened. I can't even think about anything I worried about that did happen. Right, right. And then the, the one of the later chapters uh, that it goes along with what you're saying is caring, planning, and worrying are three different things, right? It's a, a lot of what you were talking about certainly justifies caring about and certainly justifies planning about. Uh, but those two things are very different than worrying, and and most people uh, uh, go over the obsession line, I'll say, from caring and, and planning to worrying um, way more often than they need to. 
Well, let's define that. What you know? What is the difference? Because, you know, when I was growing up, my mom was a colossal worrier. She could worry about you know lint on on a pillow, um, and. You know, I never understood that. And she's like, well, I worry about you because I care about you. And they kind of became synonymous in my mind until you just brought that up. Oh, it's absolutely true. In our culture, caring and worrying are synonymous, but they're really not. Uh, and as a matter of fact, worrying actually gets in the way of caring. I mean, caring is showing a concern with, for someone. And a valid way of showing concern is taking action that can help them and doing other things that will support them. Uh, internally, going over and over and over things that won't help them at all, but will only sap your energy and probably make you make some poor decisions, um, isn't going to help them or you. And so um, th that's kind of the line that I think you, you draw there. And planning is another great example. I mean, sure, we need to think carefully about how our next week is going to go and how that meeting with the boss is going to go. But after we've thought about it and we've done everything we can, continued stories in your mind over and over and over again uh, sap your energy and really don't lead to any better plan in the end. No, they don't. And it's funny, you know, because my ex-husband, and probably why he's my ex-husband, used to say, you know, you worry too much. And I, because I was, always have contingency plans. You know, I work, he worked, you know, the kids are in school, they're, you know, it's Los Angeles, we're in different parts of the city. So I always had like contingency pickup plans and contingency. And I said, you know, a contingency plan is smart. And, you know, but I will worry that, you know, that the kids won't get picked up, which is why I have a contingency plan. But then, you know, you made a really important point, but then it stops. You know, I don't sit there and ruminate about, oh, my gosh, are they going to get picked up? Is the bus going to bust? Bus? You know, you know, you can take that to the nth degree. But planning for a contingency is very is, – is, is a – I would say it's a byproduct of worry, but, you know, you worry, well, what if something happens? And then you go, okay, well, here's my contingency plan. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, the whole book is focused on the notion of mindfulness, mm -hmm. and mindfulness allows us the space uh, to do things appropriately, and caring is entirely appropriate, planning is entirely appropriate, Allowing us to go over into the obsessive worry category um, is really unhelpful, unskillful, and, and really not something that we need to be doing. And mindfulness allows us to realize where that line is for each of us. Well, there's a choice. You know, you, you get to manage your mind. When I was in my 20s, my dad got me this book, and I don't remember who wrote it, but it was called Managing Your Mind. And, you know, he was a big one. And this was before, you know, I think, the you know, a lot of the mindfulness became second nature in, in corporations. I do a lot of leadership training. We talk about mindfulness. And, and it's a much more common word in use today than it was, say, 25, 30 years ago. Um but the concept that we can control our thoughts, we can control our mind, we can direct our energies um, has probably been around since the dawn of time. But I think it's finally it's finally getting some ground here in, in our in our especially in our current business culture. Yeah, well, the concept started to get introduced in the West in the in the 70s, um, but it really didn't get 
any widespread uh, discussion or acceptance um, until really the mid to uh, 2010, 2012, and then, you know, the cover of mag uh, Time magazine in 2015. Uh, last year, I think there were 187 articles in Time magazine with the word mindfulness in them. So it it's at least being commonly talked about and considered, and in particular in the business world. Well, it's, you know, the funny thing about mindfulness, I had a really hard time, John, understanding mindfulness. And, you know, I'm such an egghead, I had to flip it around, you know, 50 times in my head to finally figure out m mindfulness for me is not getting mired in the past of things I can't change. It's not being fearful about the future of things that aren't written yet. And it's kind of staying put. And it was only when I had kids um, and they started to get, you know, to be like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I would watch them and, you know, they might think about the math test coming up, but they weren't concerned about their future. They weren't, you know, ruminating over the past. They lost that, you know, softball game or baseball game or soccer game on Saturday, <laughs> you know, and it was was like in one ear and out the other and I really thought to myself if you forget about stuff did it really happen like I know it happened but there's no impact and so I would be constantly puzzled because I was a beat myself up over what went wrong at work last week kind of person and you know I would sit at these soccer games and then I realized like I'm not even present my body is present but my mind was somewhere in the past, and then my mind was on the to-do list for the future. And I think as adults, especially as, you know, full-time working single parents like I am, soul-supporting, it's an actual wrestling match in my head to stay present. <laughs> yeah, well, the, uh, I, the, the working definition that I use, and we use at Sea Change, is a slight variant of John Kabat-Zinn's, and it's really paying attention to the present moment both internally and externally, uh, without judgment and without being captured by your internal and external inputs in the moment. That's really the way we try to think about it. Um, and, and if you can do that, then you can make, as you say, some choices. Um, you can, you, there's nothing wrong with thinking about the past. You can learn a lot about the past, about, about what to do now by thinking about the past. Obsessing about it is where the problem comes. <laughs> and thinking about the future, nothing wrong with that. We just talked about planning being very important. Uh, obsessing about it, that's where your problem lies. Yeah. Well, like when I first got divorced, my kids were, were three months old and two and a half years old, and my husband left. And all of a sudden, I was faced with this, you know, huge mortgage, these car payments, these two kids. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, what am I going to do, John? And, and, you know, the funny thing was, is, you know, I've been doing this on my own now for over 10 years. And I just had a conversation recently with one of my friends. And I said, Oh, you know, I'm kind of worried about this, or I'm thinking about that. And she said, Sam, you've been doing this on your own, raising these kids for 10 years paying for everything you have it all down when are you going to come to the realization that you can do this and it was really a funny concept to me because I kept bouncing back and forth like you know future unpaid bills future college bills you know you know past mistakes you know financial mistakes with my company you know that I made you know during the throes of the divorce I wasn't you know on my game so I made some mistakes but you know I'd love to talk about you know where do where does the pendulum swing and you know, you've got this great book about 40 things I wish I told my kids, you know, 
with respect to success, with respect to happiness, like when when do we get to feel that we have this under control, or is that a myth? Now I need to take us to commercial break, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to that myth after the break. But the book that we're discussing today, and the man we're visiting with, is John Alcock, and it's spelled A L L C O C K. It's forty things I wish I told my kids: mindful messages about success, happiness, leather pickles, and the use and misuse of imagination. We'll be back after the break. Stay with us. There's lots more great conversation to come on Motherhood Talk Radio with Sandra Beck right after these messages. Got my dreams, got my life, got my love. Got my friends, got the sunshine above. Why am I making this hard on myself when there's so many beautiful reasons I have to be happy? If you could live your life truly standing in a place of peace, joy, and abundance, wouldn't that make your heart soar? Now you can, with Lessons in Joyful Living, with your host, Kimberly Rinaldi, Mondays at noon central. Kimberly Rinaldi, having created a highly successful coaching practice, now teaches lessons in joyful living. She believes in empowering others and that through it, you have the ability to break through any and all barriers, thus allowing you to reach your greatest potential and joyfully step into your life's purpose. What used to take weeks, months, or even years, she can now teach you in a matter of hours with her programs. For more on Kim and her show, go to her website, KimberlyRinaldi.com. That's R-I-N-A-L-D-I dot com. Then join us for Lessons in Joyful Living with your host, Kimberly Rinaldi. It's Marching Have you seen the video of the little seal that jumped into the back of a boat to escape being eaten by killer whales? A family was whale watching near Vancouver Island, British Columbia, when they noticed a pod of orcas swimming around their boat. All of a sudden, a harbor seal swam up to the stern of their boat and jumped in with the orcas hot on his tail. When a whale leaps out of the water, exposing most of its body, it's called breaching. There are 32 different species of seals distributed throughout the world and are found from polar to tropical waters. The largest concentrations of seals in the U.S. are in California and New England. Everyone who has seen the video agrees this was one lucky seal. What's another word for the fear of the sea? Thalassophobia. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Motherhood Talk Radio with Sandra Beck, bringing you interesting, influential, and inspiring guests every week, helping you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Let's get back to the show. Here's Sandra Beck. 
This is Sandra Beck, and I'm visiting today with John Alcock. He wrote a book called 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids. Now, John, when we went to break, we were talking about success and, you know, kind of my own personal journey of of putting myself through undergraduate and graduate school, getting married, having a couple kids, building a company, you know, then losing a lot of things in my divorce, building it back, and then mastering for 10 years, you know, being a soul-supported single mom with a home in Los Angeles, which is no easy easy feat and when speaking with one of my friends uh she said well when are you going to feel like a success when are you going to feel you know that you you've done you've gotten there and and i i really i really didn't have an answer for her john because maybe it's caught up in the minutiae of just doing day in and day out but and i don't have you know i've got lots of awards and certificates and things from the marine corps you know all these different things i could put all over my wall but that's not going to that's not going to give me the gold star I'm looking for. So when do we get the gold star? How do we get the gold stars? You know, when is enough enough, I guess? Well, the big part of the book is you already have the gold star. You just need to appreciate that you have it. Um, I mean, in the West, the, the way we always think of things, I mean, chapter one of the book is don't be ruled by the tearing of events the tyranny of events. And most of us in the West are ruled by the tyranny of events. Um, When we get what we want, when we have, quote, success, close quote, we're happy. The stock market goes up, we're happy. When we get what we don't want, uh, the stock market goes down, we're not happy. We get the right job, we're happy. We get the wrong job, we're unhappy. And we let external events control us when really... Uh, our happiness is dictated by our response to internal events and by how we approach things and by our mindset. And that is always changeable and that is always within our control. Um, so, you know, sort of building a way of approaching challenges so that the fact that you're facing a challenge is not a negative thing at all. It's just part of what life provides. Um, and your ability to attack it and the intentions that you bring to it uh, are what define success. Well, and, you know, I just want to put it in real tangible terms. You know, when I when I was in my 20s, John, I made a lot of money, and I, I bought a Lexus, and I thought, and it was a good one. You know, it was souped up, hopped up, the whole, the whole ball of wax. And for somebody who came from a little farming community, that was a big deal. I don't think I'd ever seen an, a luxury vehicle except for the mafia guy that lived down the street. Um, that's the only time I ever saw a luxury vehicle. Like, I could, like, be up close and touch it. Um, but I was scared of him, so I never touched his car. And when I got my car, I drove around for about a month thinking I'm all that and like, hey, I've arrived. Like, I've done this. Like, look what I've accomplished. And then somebody broke in the window. Somebody tried to steal it. Then it got banged up. And then I got a new one. And it became just a car. And for maybe a month, it felt good. But then after that, it just became a car. And the same thing happened with the other luxury items that I bought in my 20s. And then in my 30s, when I had a couple of kids, I thought, oh, you know, this is so great, John. This is so great. Like, look what I accomplished. I made these two little, you know, beautiful beings, brought them into the world. And then I'm like, oh, wow, they're independent people. I really didn't have that much to do with them other than the formation. And as they became their own things, you know, became their own people and, and their own everything, I realized, wow, I'm just the caretaker here of the 
these little human spirits to to let them fly and be free someday. So hmm, that's not it. And then I built my media company, and I got a lot of joy in helping others. And as they their successes grew and my success grew, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. But then at the end of the day, I go to bed at night, and my mom gets sick. And I watched my mom over five years slowly get eaten away from cancer until she finally did die. And I thought, oh, well, you know, there's a lot more to this, you know, happiness thing than I thought. And, you know, when she got diagnosed, she was obviously scared and everything. But then she kind of got into this cool Zen state where she's like, look, you know, my clock is ticking and I'm going to do the things that I've always wanted to do. And she lived more in those five years than she did, you know, in the 70 years of her life life and she died with grace and it really opened my eyes to how much is open to our interpretation you know how much is what what we ourselves put levy on the importance of things and levy on the choice of things and you know I, we would talk for hours, my mom and I, and, and she would tell me things. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me this when you were little? And she's like, oh, I didn't know. She's like, our thoughts change. And, you know, we when we know more, we do more. When we know better, we do better. And I think the whole thing that struck me was so how everything is so impermanent <laughs> if we let it. Everything's impermanent. There's nothing that's going to be permanent um, in, in your life. And the question is how you deal with change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the quote that my book starts with um, is from a guy, Viktor Frankl. It's, everything can be taken from a man or woman but one thing. The last of human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, mm-hmm. to choose one's own way. And that's written by a guy who was in a concentration camp and saw his entire family brought to death. And he could have chosen to live the rest of his life as a victim. Instead, he chose to uh, create an entire new branch of psychology that led directly to this mindfulness movement. And the germ of it is the germ of mindfulness, and it's the germ of my book, which is you can take any external event, including the most harmful ones, and it doesn't mean you don't appreciate the sorrow and appreciate the suffering when a loved one dies or a loved one gets sick. But then you have a choice. Your choice is to play the role of a victim or to look at it and say, why was this challenge placed in my way? What can I learn from this challenge? How can I use this challenge to inspire me to help others? And if that's the attitude that we have, it doesn't matter what external events happen to us. Uh, we're going to be happy and successful in the moment because we approach it with a proper attitude. But if we have an attitude that a new Lexus is going to make us happy, we'll never be happy because, as you pointed out, the happiness of getting new things wears off pretty quickly. It does. It does. And, you know, you 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 have these choices to make you know and at first when i read one of your chapters the one about having a millisecond or something like that like you know mm-hmm. um i got really nervous because i'm a i'm a thinker you know what i mean and it's like i have to think before i make a choice i'm not a ready fire aim girl i'm gonna ready aim fire so but it's like you know we make all these little micro decisions every day that change the course of our history and they change the course of our life. And I don't think, you know, most of us are even 
even aware of all those little micro decisions? It, no, most of them come from habit. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and our intentions, we always have an intention. We're operating on an intention every moment, every second of our lives. But most of the time, we're not aware of it. And, and that's the, the, another huge point of mindfulness in my book, which is we think that we're thinking machines and that all we can do is think, when in reality, we have another tremendous – we're like Superman, Clark Kent that goes into a phone booth and comes out with superpowers. And that superpower is mindfulness. That superpower is the ability to be aware and, and in effect, suspend our thinking mind in a way and not let our um, life be on automatic pilot with automatic thinking and habits, but to create a space and make that millisecond be much, much longer so that we have the opportunity to choose our intention in the moment. And wise choices of intention will always lead to success and happiness, regardless of the results of our actions. Well, and I think, you know, that's such a hard thing. It's it's such a hard concept for our culture here today because everything's instant. You know, you want you want the answer to something, you don't have to drive to the library like I did when I was a kid and look it up. You know, you go to your phone, Google it, and you've got instant information. You've got instant messaging, instant this, instant coffee, instant oatmeal, you know, all of this instant um I had to actually, and because I'm a programmer by by background, you know, a lot of my work I did was in computer programming. It was all in my mind. I would kind of tune into my own little brain, put my headphones on, play some music, and be lost in cyber world for days sometimes when I was creating, having no concept of anything other than, and then my brain became ticking at a, at a really rapid rate, and I had to literally stop myself to go, okay, just take a minute, take a breath, don't answer. Take a minute, take a breath, don't respond. Take a minute, take a breath. It's okay to think about things. You know, when I was growing up, uh, John, we had time to think. And, uh, you know, this habit that we've gotten into with the new technology has made it so that everything is so split second. We're not, we're not responding, we're reacting. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's, uh, you know, a huge part of what mindfulness uh, can do for us, um, but you're right. It it is um, counterculture in a, in a in a very fundamental way. Uh, our our culture is not one uh, that lends itself to creating space for awareness to operate. Uh, kind of underneath our thinking is the way I would think about it, and you know, sense our present moment experience. Um, before we um, go ahead and answer that next email. <laughs> right, right. I need to take us to commercial break. We're visiting today with John Alcock. His book is called 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids, Mindful Messages About Success, Happiness, Leather, Pickles, and the Use and Misuse of Imagination. We'll be back after the break. Challenge what the future's Try and keep your head up to the sky Lovers, they may 
Stay with us. There's lots more great conversation to come on Motherhood Talk Radio with Sandra Beck right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. It's words you never heard. Have you ever found yourself on an airplane seated next to a nonstop talker that you really don't have anything at all in common with? When I fly, I usually want to catch up on my reading and not have to listen to an explatterator. It's even worse if they're a philodox. That's a person who just loves their own opinion. Well, now a Facebook app lets you choose your own seatmate before you fly. According to an article in USA Today, social media startups are bringing together compatible flyers before they take their seats. That's good news for people lovers, otherwise known as philodemics. A number of apps such as Plainly and Satisfly are helping travelers meet not only online, but in person. Think the Match.com of travel. I love flying and have been to almost as many places as my luggage. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. As your day unfolds, challenge what the future holds. Trying to keep your head up to the sky. Welcome back to Motherhood Talk Radio with Sandra Beck, bringing you interesting, influential, and inspiring guests every week, helping you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Let's get back to the show. Here's Sandra Beck. Hey, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm visiting today with John Alcock, and he wrote the book, 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids. Now, we were talking about mindfulness. We're talking about, you know, these these 40 things that, you know, are really great. I can see these for use in my company, in my team leader meetings. I can see them, you know, these little chapter vignettes that are uh, very important that I'm going to bring to my own dinner table for my kids. Um and one of the things that we're talking about today with this mindfulness is is slowing down and responding, not reacting. And one of the things, John, that I, I really feel frustrated about, especially with the advent of technology, and, you know, my background is in tech, so I, no complaints here. I think it's a fabulous thing, but the, the downside of it is 
We intellectualize so much these days. Everything is about data and content and the reshuffling of data into new information. And, you know, information is flying at us at an alarming rate. And I see my kids and sometimes even myself looking at things only with analytics, only with the analytical mind. And when you become mindful or you, like for me, I sit in mindfulness. I do this a lot in my office before new clients come in and I take a deep breath and I feel what's in my body. And I've taught my kids this thing. It's called a head check, heart check, gut check. And I'm like, you know, whenever you're going to make a decision, whenever you're getting involved in something, do your head check, heart check, gut check. How does it sound in your head? How does it feel in your heart? And how does it feel in your gut? Because you might have a nervous stomach but feel good in your heart and you know rationalize things in your head and so that mindfulness allows me also to sit down for a moment and think about what my feelings are telling me and when I was in business school everything and you went to law school you know what is law reason free from emotion um you know, we, we miss we miss a lot of that information when we when we aren't aware, when we aren't present. There's lots of cues of what's going on in your office, what's going on in your household, as long as you're present. If you're not present, you're gonna miss all that information and make make really poor decisions. Yeah. Um I mean dead center uh of of this book is uh a chapter called uh Doing Nothing is highly underrated. And um, it's kind of what you were talking about. At, at Sea Change, the school that, that I co-founded with my wife, uh, we teach basic mindful meditation uh, to the students. And um, what we do is very similar to, to what you uh, were talking about. Um, they're guided meditations. They last maybe five to seven minutes. Uh, students are put in comfortable postures, sitting uh, with their arms by their side or on their knees, and they are focused on their breath, and we guide them through um, releasing the various uh, things that come up, the sounds that come up, the sensations that come up, the thoughts that come up, the extraneous events around them that try to intrude on their attention. And and we kind of try to get them uh, to have the ability to direct their attention where they want and to let go of uh, things that tend to grab at their attention. And as you pointed out earlier, there's so many things in our current society that, that vie for our attention. And having the ability to do nothing and, and not be captured by them and allow yourself to get the inputs from all your various senses and body sensations um, is kind of really what it's all about. Well, and, you know, even just using your eyes, you know, I tried this, you know, I'm lucky to be in a company where I can go and kind of practice and play around these things. And I sat in a meeting the other day and I, I said, you know, I'd like to just join the meeting. And, you know, the guy's like, oh, he's like, you want to contribute? And I'm like, no, I'm like, I just want to sit in the back and plug my ears. And he was like, okay, <laughs> just another one of, you know, Sandra's great ideas. But I sat and watched this whole meeting, John, without audio. And I, I purposely, you know, was I purposely didn't pay attention to the words, didn't pay attention to the tonality, didn't pay attention to anything. And I just watched the expressions of the assistants' faces, of the managers' faces. And, you know, there was so much information there. Um 
just by being present and even blocking out, you know, that little bit of quote-unquote knowledge to allow me to even read their expressions, read their energy. And it's funny because one of the guys I work with a lot, I learned so much about him when he's frustrated, like his shoulder slump, when he feels defeated. You know, he had the best body language of anybody I've ever read. It was like a, a, a book. And, um, you know, and I could see when the whole office got fatigued. You know, I got they got tired of listening and their eyes are moving around fiddling with their pens you know it was so much fun to be present and just observe yeah 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 you you have a lot of inputs um that the thinking process uh tends to uh block um or ignore um you know we're, we're smart in very very many ways and mindfulness allows us to open to all those ways mm-hmm. Thinking is one of them, and it's one that's very, very important, Um, but it's overused. Yes, and it's not the end-all, be-all. You know, if we intellectualize things, um, that's just that's just one part of it. You know, it's like it's like you know, you got a pan of brownies, and intellectualizing might be the chocolate, but without the eggs, the flour, the vanilla, and whatever, the water, you know, you're left with just the chocolate, and you know, I don't know how how good we are as a culture in the United States in honoring those other inputs. Yeah, no, I don't think we're very good at all. I mean, ours is a thinking culture. We we um, and and not only is it a thinking culture, but it's a it's a culture where we think we're in control of our thoughts. Uh, right. We we think. We think we're like Captain Kirk on the deck of the Starship Enterprise, and our thoughts are, you know, uh, all of the uh, all of our minions that are floating around us that 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 obey our commands. Uh, that's the way we think uh, it is, and it, you know, as you know, it's not that way at all. I mean, thoughts enter our our head from all different directions, including our subconscious. And sometimes the thoughts take control uh, over the stage, and and we become beholden to that. You know, we open the credit card bill, and five minutes later, we're still thinking about it, and, and indeed, we're worrying about, you know, whether or not we're going to get thrown on the street and evicted uh, because, you know, we're, we don't have enough money to pay it. Um, and and so thinking is way overrated and and we can't control our thoughts we can't control what enters our head uh but we can control what we do after it gets there what thoughts we pay attention to and which ones we don't and which thoughts we let go of and if we let go of thoughts they'll go away and disappear and and they they won't have control over us but so many of us don't really uh even realize uh, that that's really the way the mind operates. Right. The mind to me is like a, if, you know, anybody who's ever had kids, you know, it's like a cranky toddler. And it's going to demand, it's going to whine, it's going to cry, it's going to cajole, it's going to do any, you know, anybody who's ever been up in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning taking care of a cranky toddler, you know, like, and it's the same thing, like you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you're like, oh my God, you know, how am I going to pay all these bills? How am I going to raise these kids? All you have to do is write down the harebrained ideas that come to you about how you're going to solve all these problems in an effort to get back to sleep. And so having a relationship with your thoughts, I 
think is really important because I've thought some really crazy stuff, John, just to get back to sleep. And then I wake up in the morning going, wow, I'm so glad I didn't call the client and tell them that, you know, (laughs) you know, just my own internal wrestling match to get back to sleep. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, it's, uh, I, I, I have a lot of quotes in the book, but one of my favorite quotes is, observing our mind's antics at close quarters and in real time, we discover we have a lunatic in the attic. And that's kind of what you're, what you're talking about. I mean, another way to think about it is if we were, if we were sitting in a, in a, uh, in a conference or in a, in an audience, um, and the person next to us could hear our thoughts, what would you think? <laughs> bananas. Absolute yeah, bananas. Right, right. Like you would be, yeah. you, you wouldn't, you would, you'd have me committed. I'd have you committed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think being aware of these things is, is 90%, like, you know, 90% of the battle because, you know, I can always tell when people aren't aware of their own thoughts or like, and it's funny because I've got a teenager, I've got a 14 year old, he's six, three, he's 220 pounds with a size 16 foot and he's smart as a whip. And he and his buddies are all about, we know everything, you know, it's part of that teenage, you know, I'm, I know everything. And, you know, the fact is, is we can actually hypnotize ourselves into believing that because we thought it, ergo, it must be so. Yeah, right. Well, you know, a big part of um, the the second half of my book um, is once you realize uh, what we've been talking about, that is that we have a lunatic in the attic, um, what to do about it. And and the what to do about it is to select wise intentions uh, and do what you can to um, behave according to those intentions. And, um, you know, a a central message of of the book is that if you do that, um, you'll be successful and you'll be happy. Um, You won't always... Um, when you won't always reach your goals, you won't always make the things that you intend happen. Uh, but if you select wise intentions and you are mindful about how you go about them, um, you'll be successful and happy even when you don't reach your goals. Okay, we'll be back after the break. Stay with us. There's lots more great conversation to come on Motherhood Talk Radio with Sandra Beck right after these messages. Welcome to Geraldine Tegelov Live, the show that shares with you the secrets of redefining, reinventing, and rebuilding your life. 
having pulled herself from the rubble of financial ruin and having gone on to create a highly successful career, Geraldine has become an expert in the art of transformation. She believes that it doesn't matter where you are right now, how overwhelmed you feel, or how impossible the task of turning your life around may seem. You can do it. Stay tuned as metaphysician, international best-selling author and intuitive Geraldine Tegelov gives you the inner understanding and the outer practical how-to to create your amazing life. Gain a fresh perspective on how to redefine, reinvent, and rebuild your life. Join Geraldine Tegelov live every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on the Toginet Radio Network. night my husband was laughing as he was reading about the differences between men and women according to the article men get single tusks or hiccups more often than women everyone knows that women are better at multitasking than men i'm good at both multitasking and procrastinating which means right now there are 28 things that i'm putting off until later What's another word for a person who puts everything off until the last minute? A cunctator. Women blink nearly twice as much as men. And while men can read smaller print than women, women can hear better. In fact, when a woman says, what? She heard you. She's just giving you a chance to change what you said. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Back to Motherhood Talk Radio with Sandra Beck, bringing you interesting, influential, and inspiring guests every week, helping you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Let's get back to the show. Here's Sandra Beck. Hey, this is Sandra Beck, and we're visiting today with John Alcott. He wrote the book, 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite chapters in the book, and these are really great chapters, guys. You know, I I, I like books that get right to the point. I like books that don't run me around the mulberry bush and, and you know, give me some takeaway in four or five pages of clean writing, and this book really has that. It's articulate, it's, it's well-spoken, and it's easy to read and it's it's designed in these little chapterlets that each one of them can be a takeaway they could be a business meeting they could be a family you know dinner table conversation so you know really really valuable information in here the chapter is determination and discipline lead to freedom and at first glance at that i chuckled because i'm thinking well determination and discipline what does that have to do with freedom well it turns out everything yeah, so most of us in the West think of freedom as freedom to do something. Um, you know, uh, society gives us freedom to travel or freedom to shop or freedom to do whatever we want. Um, but that's not the kind of freedom, and that's not true freedom, uh, and it's not the kind of freedom I'm talking about in this chapter. What I'm talking about in this chapter is freedom from our own unhealthy and uh, and, and, and habits that make us unhappy. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we want to lose weight. Uh, we want to stop 
uh, alcohol consumption. We want to get better grades. We want to do something that our own internal habits have stood in the way of us achieving. And so determination and discipline are the two things. First, you need to choose a wise intention. Uh, so, for example, I'm going to lose 20 pounds by paying attention to my diet and going to the gym three times a week. And so then you wake up in the morning at 5.30 a.m., and all of a sudden the stories start coming. Oh, I don't want to go to the gym. I'm an engineer, not an athlete. Uh, it really won't work anyways. Uh, and that's where determination and discipline come in. You apply some determination and get yourself out of bed and start walking to the gym, and then you apply discipline. And discipline, what I mean here, is not somebody holding the stick over your head, but you doing the act that you've committed to on a repetitive basis until you replace the negative habit with a positive habit. And, and so as time goes on, uh, it creates freedom freedom from the negative behaviors, negative thought patterns, negative habits that have created an unhappy situation for yourself. So that's a quick summary of that chapter, which is really one of my favorite chapters in the book. Well, and it's interesting because I took it, you know, I, I read it and then I took it a little differently as I interpreted it. And I just want to share it with you because when I when I first saw the title, I was like, uh-oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know how this sits with me. I have to chew on it for a while. And then I read the chapter, and then I thought about it, and the formula that I came up with was the determination to change my story and the discipline to believe something new, and that's what led me to freedom. Yeah, that's, that's another way to say it. That's another way to say it. Um, yeah, be, because let's talk about these narrative, these these stories that we tell ourselves. And, um, you know, after I had my second kid and, you know, was divorced and I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I got to lose weight. I got to put myself back on the market, you know, thinking farm girl ways. We got to make the cow look good before, you know, she goes to auction. And as I as I explored some of these stories that I told myself, I realized most of them aren't true. There are stories that were either woven by my brothers and sisters, maybe by my parents, by teachers. They were what they believed to be true. And I kind of had to have a sit-down conversation with myself in a journal and a cup of tea for about, I don't know, three years in the morning um, of thinking about what is it that I believe? You know, do I believe that I'm going to be fat because my relatives were all from Poland and Germany and they were all big farm people? Is that the story that's true for me? Is it a story that's passed down to my, you know, giant brothers and sisters? And, you know, am I, am I that? I mean, there's certain genetics components at play, but what is my belief about that story? And instead of taking a story as a belief and making it my own, I had to have the discipline because it wasn't a lot of fun to sit down and really analyze what do I believe about myself? What do I believe? And, you know, John, I taught my first spin class yesterday. And who would think because that didn't fit the family story that was handed down. I'm, I'm just using in relation to weight gain, weight loss. If you believe that you're big because of your genetics and you come from big people and you're just destined to be big, your story becomes your reality. Well, guess what? I changed my story. 
Ergo, I had a different outcome. You know, that's the whole first half of the book. Uh, yep. Chapter six is much of which we much of what we believe is wrong, and it it goes directly to what you're saying that that we live in stories that are either inaccurate or unhelpful. Um, I mean, some of them may have been accurate at a certain point in time. They actually may even have been helpful at a certain point in time. When you're three years old, the story that crying helps getting you what you want is actually probably not a bad story. It's true and it's helpful. Uh, If that's your story when you're 33, uh, it's probably not a very helpful story for you. Um, and that's a silly example, but we, we always live in stories, uh, and checking their accuracy and checking their current helpfulness, uh, and then changing the stories when they're no longer accurate and, or no longer helpful is the skill of living a happy life and mindfulness is allows you to step back from your story, to evaluate it with fresh eyes, and to determine whether it's one that you really need to have anymore or whether it's one you have to release. Now, it's not always that easy to release the stories or even to recognize them in the first place. But if you don't try and you don't start with mindfulness, you're not going to really be able to do it at all. Well, and I think, you know, there's lots of clues around, you know, it's no surprise that I was, you know, an investigative journalist, you know, that was my my course of study, because I always think that, you know, there's clues around, we just got to look for the clues. And when my mom died, John, um, and I was cleaning out her house, I found all my elementary school records, you know, from when I was educated in New York, and I took those records, and I pulled the keywords out of them, little programmer that I am, and I wrote them down. (laughs) And in my elementary school, I was called scatterbrained, shy, bossy, outgoing, difficult, friendly, unfocused, stubborn, and sweet. Five years, six years. (laughs) Right. I mean, you just go. And I really thought about those things going, you know, there's an element in truth in all of these, you know, at some point in my elementary school career. Um, But the scatterbrained is what makes me really good at my job. I'm available to amass lots of information. And, and, you know, what might seem unfocused to you is very hyper-focused to me on data acquisition. I mean, there was all these things going through my head. And then I had to sit down and think, wow, this is what these teachers thought about me this is what they put in my report cards this is what they told my parents no wonder my parents didn't know what to do with me but these were all their stories they're not my stories and I had to really think about what what do I really believe about myself yeah and um you know everyone has stories from from their childhood um and we need to ask ourselves what do I really believe about myself and also, what's really true? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some things like, you know, I'm uh, turning 62 tomorrow. Um, I can't jump that high. And my jump shot never was good. And it's, be- it's worse now. So my making the MBA is probably a long shot. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, you know, sometimes we need to have accurate evaluations of, you know, where we are in our, in our circumstance. Um, but then so many times 
um, we we find ourselves in stories uh, that limit ourselves. Like for example, in about three weeks, I'm going to go with. Uh, my team of five other kids from Sea Change, I count myself a kid in this, and we're going to swim 36 miles on a relay team between one Italian island off the Amalfi Coast and another and back again. Um, not too many 62-year-olds are doing that. Um, so, you know, you can, you can change things, uh, look at things realistically, uh, but not cut yourself short either. Well, not buy into what other people say about you. Right, or what, That's or your what choice. the culture says. Right. Yeah. Or what the culture says, yeah. Who's the worst NBA player, or the worst NBA team right now? Do you know who's the lowest ranked? Oh, I haven't paid attention. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I yeah. haven't paid attention recently. I was going, like, I think it's either Atlanta or Philadelphia, so you might want to give them a call or Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. All right. Well, we are visiting today with John Elcott. His book is Elcock, sorry, uh, spelled A-L-L-C-O-C-K. His book, 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids. John, where can people find more about you? Uh, well, the website for the book is the best place, and it is very creatively titled 40 Things I Wish I Told My Kids. Um, and it has... Um, uh, excerpt from the book uh, has ways to order it. It has uh, some short examples of talks that I'm um, prone to giving on some of these subjects, uh, and it has a um, link uh, to. There's a mindfulness and education page with a link to the Sea Change website. Excellent. So Excellent. it's a so there lot of information. Can... Great. They can find you there or they can look for the Phoenix Suns or the uh, Memphis team <laughs> to find John Alcock playing for him at 62. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today on Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck. Motherhood Talk